it's obvious that midwives need to be reinstated because midwifery gives a different quality of care, a quality of care that women want. They want somebody to hold them and hug them and comfort them during labor. They want somebody to help them celebrate their pregnancy and not leave a doctor's office in fear because they said something to you that scared you or had you wondering about your own body, if your body's going to be able to work because of this, that, or the other. Having somebody to give you some mothering love, someone who's going to answer your questions, someone who's going to listen to you when you call and tell them that you're feeling a symptom and not be dismissed. That's what it is that women want. They want to go back to where we were before, okay? Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. This week, I'm turning the mic over to one of our Glow instructors, Katanya Henderson. She is a wonderful teacher who teaches dance-inspired strength building and Pilates classes. Katanya's mission is to empower the mind and body to bring you closer to your superpowered human self. Underscored by her mantra, we get stronger together every day. She was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, which may give you a clue about the focus of this episode where Katanya interviews her mother, Saran Henderson. I'm so honored and grateful that Katanya chose to be in conversation with her mom here on the Globe Podcast. In 1980, shortly after giving birth to the first of five children, Saran accepted her calling to midwifery. She studied midwifery through the apprenticeship model and since has delivered more than a thousand babies. In this episode, she shares her journey to learn more about her profession and understand the origins of the black midwife in America. I also appreciate her sharing her perspective on maternal wellness, along with her vision for the overall pregnancy experience. Please see the links in our show notes to learn more about Saran and her services, along with a link to a 50-minute video biography on her website. I hope you enjoy Katanya's conversation with her mom, Saran Henderson. All right. I am so thrilled to introduce the listeners at GLOW um, to someone who's very special and close to me in my life. It is my mother. And I thought, why not a good way to introduce myself and also introduce the person who brought me into this world. And we're just gonna, you know, have a conversation around midwifery, uh, a bit about the history, uh, understanding more about what it is and where we are today with midwifery, specifically in Georgia. So I wanna introduce you all to my mother, Mama Saran. <laughs> Hello. How you doing, Kate Tanya? Listeners. I'm doing well, mommy. <laughs> thank you for having me on. Yes, thank you for coming and being available for this. So I wanted to um, start with kind of getting a history of midwifery. Take us back. Um, let us know what it is exactly. Give us a little bit of a history lesson, if you don't mind. <sighs> So the earliest recording of the history of midwifery that we can find in written form is in the Bible. 
there may be some texts in other books, but I'm going to refer to the Bible since that's the one that I've seen and most people have seen. And in um, the days of the pharaohs, that was when there were two popular midwives named Shifra and Pua. And they were the lead midwives in Egypt. And apparently the pharaoh had gotten word that there was going to be a, a baby boy being born soon and that this boy child would grow to be a ruler. And he didn't want to have that. And so he's called, he summons the midwives to the palace and he commanded them to make sure that all the boy children that are born amongst the Hebrews, that they're all killed upon birth. And so time was going by and he had learned that there were male babies that were being born after all. And so once again, he summons the midwives back to his palace and asked them why these baby boys were being born, that he had commanded them to make sure that the babies did not survive childbirth. And so they told him that because the Hebrew women are, are vigorous because they were slaves at the time, um, that they would deliver their babies before they would arrive. And so that's how Moses came into being because he was saved by those midwives. Wow. And so that's the earliest documentation of, um, of midwifery's history. Um, the way that I got further into learning about the history of midwifery is me coming into midwifery and seeking our history. And um, as I would research going through books and whatnot and um, came across the intros in these books or the preface of these books, um, when I would read about the history of midwifery, it was reflecting the history of the Caucasian midwife into this country. It didn't have anything to do with um, a, a black midwives or Native American midwives. It just wasn't written. And so for a number of years um, after I came into midwifery, I couldn't find any history. Sometimes time went by, maybe a few more years went by when I received a call from a fellow midwife friend of mine who told me that there was a video documentary that was going to be shown at a library downtown and that I might be interested in it because it was going to be featuring a granny midwife. So when we're talking about granny midwife, now we're talking about history. So as you can tell, I was eager to get down there, which I was, and I watched the video at the edge of my seat, just couldn't wait to get back home so I can make some phone calls. And so I watched the video. It was very good. It was a maybe an hour, hour and a half video documentary that was produced by the Georgia Health Department and directed by George Stoney. And um, this video was to be used as a teaching aid to teach granny midwives in different counties through their health department the importance of hygiene and cleanliness during childbirth. And so it focused um, on one granny midwife named Mary Cooley, who is from Albany, Georgia. And you watched her as she followed two mothers. One was uh, um, lived in the city of, of Albany. And you could tell that she was you know, a working class for that time period. This period was 
back in the 1950s, I think 1952, this film was, um, was produced. And the other mother was a poor woman. She was a farmer. She and her husband were, you know, they were farmers and lived in the rural parts outside of Albany. And you watch the difference of how she cared for them based on um, these mothers. One was well-to-do, sort of well-to-do for a black woman and had a wonderful birth, carried full term. You had the other one that wasn't as well-to-do. She was poor didn't always eat right. She goes into labor early. She delivers this, you know, premature baby. And you see them in the clinics um, before birth going through their workshops and um, and watching the doctor as the doctor's examining the, these women and talking to them about the importance of hand washing and cleanliness. Okay, so that's what the video was all about. And so when I came home, I was ex I was excited. I knew that that was a door opener um, to my history. And so when I came home, I immediately called the main hospital in Albany, Georgia, and I had them to connect me to labor and delivery which they did. And then I spoke to a nurse in labor and delivery and I asked her, has she ever heard of a midwife there in that county named Mary Cooley? And she said, of course I know Mary Cooley. She says she delivered almost everybody in Albany, but you missed her about four years. She's been gone for about four years now. But she said, and I told her that I was interested in and researching Georgia's midwifery history, especially the black midwifery history. And so she led me to the health department in Albany and told me to call there first thing in the morning. So I did that. And the lady, the lady I spoke to at that office, she told me that I should be able to find all the information that I need contacting the health department in Atlanta. So I contacted the health department in Atlanta and I spoke to somebody and this lady told me, she says, well, everything that you want to know about Georgia's history is housed in the archives ever since the time that Oglethorpe arrived here. So I said, okay, so for a number of years, I would drop my children off at school. And while they were in school, then I would spend hours and hours in the archives researching, pulling up documents and records and pictures and forms and just all kinds of things. And so um, I was able to pull up names of people who I suspected would still be living. And so I contacted them one by one and I told them I was interested in recording their stories. And I told them I was a midwife and that we were continuing on the legacy of midwifery, but we need to catch their stories. And so I was invited to countless of granny midwife's homes. Me and my partner would travel during the day and, and um, sit at the footsteps of these granny midwives and catch their stories. So they gave me their stories, their history, which filled in the gaps. So between what I saw on the video documentary with Miss Mary, by the way, this documentary is called All My Babies. And you can find All My Babies on YouTube as well. Okay, before when I saw it, it was on a 16 millimeter reel. So now it's on, you can see it on, on YouTube. But um, that was, that was the beginnings. That was definitely the beginnings because before then, we're talking about a period in time in the 80s when people did not have 
computers in their houses, okay? The World Wide Web wasn't even threaded at that time. And so once the World Wide Web came up and, and we got our computer on our, you know, in our house, then I started publishing pictures that I found I got permission from the health department to be able to, you know, post these pictures and whatnot, as long as I gave credit to the health, to the Department of Archives, I meant. And um, and then I think I just kind of got the ball rolling because it wasn't until then that the presence of granny midwives were now in the faces of millions of people through the screens, the computer screens. And that's pretty much about our history. But, you know, when I think about, when I think further back and just put common sense into our history as a whole, we have to go back further than that, okay? Because I mentioned that that was in 1952. But see, we arrived here, you know, much earlier than, than, than that. And so the midwives, they came along, you know, on the slave ships, you know, during the the slave trade period. And um, and these midwives had to have made themselves um, known to the plantation owner that they were skilled in helping women have babies because people were having babies on the plantations. And so once a plantation owner identified this particular woman as being the midwife, you know, for him, his plantation. She was the midwife of his plantation. And a lot of times neighboring plantations did not have midwives. So a lot of times she hired herself out um, or was hired out to um, deliver babies, you know, from neighboring plantations. And um, of course, this went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, slavery went on for 400 years, the way that we know it. And so then we come out of slavery. And so now we're moving into post-slavery days, um, segregation, Jim Crow period of time, where even though black people were were free, so to speak, um, there were still roadblocks and barriers that kept us from being able to be fully free. One of them being that um, we were not allowed to have our babies in the hospitals. So at one point in time, I'm going to speak specifically on Georgia. At one point in time, the, um, the health department has a recording of over 9,000 midwives just in the state of Georgia. And so when you think about it, when you think about the population of people here in Georgia, people who did not have cars or railroads, you know, railways or Ubers or anything like that. They walked. And if they were fortunate, maybe they had a horse, but they can only go so far, you know. So every community had her own midwife. You know, she she went as far as her feet can take her to get to a birth in a timely fashion. And so, you know, you have granny midwives that held up, held up our nation, you know, for for decades, you know, maybe even a hundred years or so, just holding up communities, giving them the best um, care that they could, considering that we were not allowed to have, you know, our babies in the hospitals. And um, back in 1929, I think they decided that. They could really make a money maker out of birthing 
if they lifted some of their um, their laws and their rules and their regulations and their ways of thinking. And so they created an act, an act the Township Act, and that act was put into place to, to allow Black women and poor white women to now have their babies in the hospitals. And so there was a deliberate act to... Um, retire midwives out of their profession, one by one, county by county, and to now funnel all women into having their babies in the hospital in order to address the maternal and infant mortality rates. So it was made to look as if the home births um, cared by um, midwives was the reason for Georgia's um, high maternal and infant mortality rates. And so um, actions were put into place where counties would um, round up the midwives in in their county. And one by one, they started retiring them. And when I read some of the stories or when I talk to some of the, the granny midwives about how their mothers who were probably, who were midwives themselves, who probably told them the stories of their history into midwifery. A lot of these midwives were very sad and angry that they were being retired, but that was the plan. The master plan was to eliminate the midwife. They called it the midwife problem. So if you want to look up the midwife problem, you can type in the midwife problem in the internet and you'll read all about what it is. I'm speaking about that this was a deliberate act to quote unquote save mothers and babies, to eliminate the granny midwife and have all women to deliver their babies in hospitals. So we're talking about 1929 when this law went into effect and, um, or this act went into effect and it lasted for about four years, but it just continued on because by this time you have people, especially black people who are feeling like because white women have their babies in the hospital, then this must be a privilege, you know? So it was a privilege now to have your babies in the hospital. And so now more and more women, black women were now having their babies in hospitals. And I'm talking about like in the city and in the suburbs, in the rural parts of Georgia, the midwives continued because um, there was still a need for them. Hospitals were far away and, and they, they continued to care for them until the last midwife, Miss Arilla Smiley, put in for her retirement, which was in, um, I want to say that it was in the 70s. And so in the early 80s, then you have my generation of midwives that are now coming in. So now I'm talking about three eras of midwifery in our culture, in the African-American culture. You have the antebellum midwife that arrived here during the slave trade. She passed the baton on to the granny midwife who held it down through the Jim Crow um, segregation civil rights era. And they passed the baton on to my generation of midwives. So I'm the a direct link from the granny midwives. And um, so when we sprouted up, little did they know we were around. They thought that they had, 
that midwives were extinct, uh, an extinct species, but we were here, we took on the call. You know, a lot of us believe that we answered the call from the ancestors saying, we need y'all, y'all take it up. And we did. And it wasn't just black midwives, it was white midwives. And it wasn't just here in Georgia, it was everywhere. Because now when I, I want to open it up kind of nationally where, you have that period of time that I'm talking about of the civil rights era that took us through the 60s, maybe during the early 70s, that kind of rippling off, where there's, there was a lot of social change that was going on in the United States. You had the Vietnam War that was going on. Out of the Vietnam War going on, you had protesting groups of people. You had the hippies, you had the Black Panthers. Um, groups like that who were anti-Vietnam War that was going on. We had just come out of women's rights, being able to vote, live, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so there was a lot of social changes that were that was occurring during that era of 60s, 70s. And in that, you had people who were now wanting to take control of their births. And so like I was born in the in the middle of the 50s. And so I was a hospital born baby. I was the first of my family lineage to be born in the hospital. Well, my brother who was a year older than I am, but we were the first generation to be hospital born babies. And um, at that time, uh, midwives, and, and, and that was in California. But at that time, um, people were becoming a little bit more um, direct in how they wanted their births to, to go, but still being under the confines of hospitals and their rules, testings, experiments that were going on. Um, at that time, women were being given Twilight, which was a drug that had women super duper high. They knew that they were childbirthing, but they couldn't feel it and probably fell asleep. And then when they woke up, then they were introduced to their babies. That's how I was introduced to my mother and my brother was introduced to my mother as well. But so that was the 50s. So in the 60s, then you start having people, like I said, that were wanting to take more control over different things. And so you have people who want to take more control over their birth. The men, the fathers who should rightfully be a part of their birth experiences, they experience since they are the fathers of the babies, they were always in the waiting room while the mother was in the delivery room with doctors and nurses. So the mother and the father were separated. And so the families, they started voicing that they wanted the husbands to be a part of the birthing experience as well. And so then that's how Lamaze and one other childbirthing group that focused on childbirthing in the hospital came about. Childbirth education classes came about so that they can include the fathers into the childbirth experience. And so once you took these classes, then you were given little cards. And this card was basically the father's entry into the delivery room so that he could see his baby being born. And not unless you had taken the classes, you couldn't go. Okay, and so that went on for a little while. And then you have some people who wanted to take it just a little bit further and wanted to reclaim birth as a family experience. 
away from hospitals and doctors, away from people who were, you know, pushing drugs on them and making labor accelerate. They wanted to have their babies at home. And so you had a, there was a group of hippies that came out of San Francisco, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And they were at whatever the university is that's in, that's in San Francisco. Um, there was some professors and some students. And apparently there was some influential professors to the students because they eventually left school. The professors dropped from their profession. The students dropped out of school and they caravanned from California to Tennessee. And they created what we know as the farm. The farm is located in Summertown, Tennessee. And they caravanned in, um, in those Volkswagen vans that you remember seeing from the 60s and the 70s. And school buses, they gutted school buses out and created homes in those, um, in those school buses. And they bought 300 acres of land to create their own community. There was about 300 of them. And um, babies were being born. And so one of the women decided to take on the leadership role of catching babies. She made friends with a neighboring doctor who saw that they were there. It was an intentional community. Birthing at home was an intentional act. And so he um, volunteered to train these midwives. And so what came out of that experience was a national attention to home births. Even if home birth wasn't available in your state, you can come to Summertown, Tennessee, to the farm and have your babies there. So training women to become midwives became part of their legacy. Um, the main midwife who I'm speaking of, Ina McGaskin, she wrote a book called The Spiritual Midwifery that circulated all throughout the United States and the attention of the, the profession of midwifery, as well as the, the act of having home births was gaining um, popularity all over the United States including here in Georgia. And so when um, their book, when her book was published, then she would go around the United States and do book signing um, events and talk about home birth and talk about midwifery. And she came to Atlanta in 79 when my husband, your dad, my husband, <laughs> was expecting <laughs> our first and so we came to listen to her because we had heard about her. So we came to listen to her speak. And um, and um, there was another woman who wrote a book called Special Delivery. Those are probably the first two books that was focusing on home birth and midwifery in the home birth setting that um, popularized itself here in the United States. And they were doing the same thing. She was going around the country and uh, promoting home birth and midwifery and just enlightening people about, you know, preparing yourself for natural birth, birth at home. And so that's pretty much how I got myself to where I am here. And I believe how I got many people up to where we are in terms of, you know, fishing in our history not only just from the biblical days, but the history of, you know, midwifery and childbirthing and 
midwifery customs and birthing customs, pregnancy, do's and don'ts, you know, from the time that we arrived here all the way up to, you know, where we are right now. And, um, and when I first came into midwifery, there were only five states that licensed midwives. And um, today, I want to say that there are 37 states now that are um, that are that license midwives. Georgia, unfortunately, is not one of them. Um, myself and my partner, who just made her transition, and a few other midwives, white and black, have been to Georgia's health department since 1993, trying to pass a bill to license midwives. And um, it's kind of disheartening that my partner was not able to see that come to fruition. I hope that I'm able to see that come to fruition because we need it. And um, we need it even more so now than we have ever in the past because the demand for home birthing has greatly increased. When my midwife delivered your brother, she he was her seventh delivery. You know, and she's gone on to deliver thousands of babies. So have I, and so have many other people. But we got our big boost, you know, during COVID. And COVID, interestingly enough, normalized home birth. You know, when people started weighing the likelihood of surviving childbirth in the hospital, and uh, where especially for women of color, and especially here in Georgia, where the maternal mortality um, problem is at its greatest, it, Georgia ranks neck to neck. We we kind of fight for the <laughs> for number one between Louisiana and Georgia. So when the awareness started becoming, you know known that Georgia has a very high high maternal mortality rate, then you have more women who were choosing to have their babies at home. I think they figured that they might have a better chance of surviving childbirth if they stayed at home with the skilled midwife as opposed to having their babies at in the hospital where they were being neglected or not heard or dismissed or some of the other reasons that, um, that causes women to um, not survive you know, their childbirth experiences from having hospital births. And so um, when COVID came, then that was like two monsters that was facing the women of Georgia. You had Georgia's maternal mortality rates, and then you had COVID. And so all of us midwives just got very busy. Midwives who were not busy got busy. Midwives who were busy got busier. And I think it was in January or either February, this past January or February, there's an article that's published in the AJC, that's the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, where they um, did an article writing about how Georgia's home birth has increased by 29% since COVID. And so what's happened is that we have a supply and demand and demand imbalance now. There's a greater demand than there is a supply of midwives, okay? And so once again, this year, we were down there at the Capitol trying to make our um, make it known that midwives need to be 
re-sewn back into the fabric of maternity health care, into the maternity health care system here in Georgia. She did a great job for 400 years, not only delivering babies of her own kind, but delivering white babies as well, you know. When you look at the maternal mortality rates from the 20s up to the 20s, especially like right around that 20, that 1929 period when they decided to um, extinguish midwives. When you look at that period of time and measure the amount of maternal and infant mortality and the purpose for them um, retiring midwives, and you look at 2022 and you see that our maternal mortality rates are higher now than they were then, and that our infant mortality rates are still about the same. We always kind of edge like around fourth and fifth in the nation of having the highest infant mortality rate. Mm -hmm. So when you look at those numbers of then and now, then it makes you ask yourself, what happened? If you eliminated the midwife because she could have been one of the reasons for Georgia's maternal mortality rate, then what's the excuse today? Mm-hmm. You know, why is she, why is her life being sacrificed more now than this, than then? So apparently the system has failed us during that period of time from 29 to 2023, 2022. And so it's obvious that midwives need to be reinstated because midwifery gives a different quality of care, a quality of care that women want. Mm -hmm. They want somebody to hold them and hug them and, you know, comfort them during labor. They want somebody to help them celebrate their pregnancy and not leave a doctor's office in fear because they said something to you that scared you or had you wondering about your own body, if your body's going to be able to work because of this, that, or the other. Having somebody to give you some mothering love, someone who's going to answer your questions, you know, someone who's going to listen to you when you call and tell them that you're feeling a symptom Mm -hmm. and not be dismissed. That's what it is that women want. They want to go back to where we were before, okay? Can you talk a little bit more about, like, because whenever I tell any of my friends, you know, they like, what do your mom do? I, I say, she's a midwife. And they're like, oh, she does. She's like a doula. And I'm like, no, she's not a doula. She's a midwife. Can you just explain a little bit more? Like, what would someone expect? Like, walk us through, you know, what it is to be a midwife. What does that look like? What type of experience is that? And how is that different from being a doula? Okay, so... I want to kind of um, go just a little bit more deeper and give some more clarity for your audience. So there's different layers of maternity care providers during the pregnancy, okay? You have your childbirth educators who are going to prep you and teach you about what to expect, how to take care of yourself during your pregnancy, how to prepare for birth, breastfeeding, newborn, and beyond. So she provides you with all your education and your knowledge. Then you have a doula. A doula is somebody who is trained to offer support 
during labor. She's there to breathe with you, to rub your back. She's there to um, pull out some of her tricks out of her trade, meaning that, you know, she has some tricks that can help get a baby moved from one position to another position. She's there to do that. She's She's there to help to facilitate, to comfort, to reassure both mother and the father. And especially in the hospital setting, she's there as an advocate because she knows the medical lingo. And so if a doctor comes in or a nurse comes into the room and they're saying something that's over the head of the mother and father, then she can interpret what it is that they're saying and help them to you know, make some decisions about the course of their labor. A midwife. So you have um, you have different tracks into midwifery. You have your nurse midwifery track, and who primarily delivers babies in hospitals and in birthing centers, and in some states even at home. And then you have your community midwives. Your community midwives come directly into midwifery either through an apprenticeship program or through another program that's not a nurse midwifery program. A nurse midwife is a nurse first. She goes four years of nursing school. She gets that taken care of, and then she gets her master's in midwifery. So she goes to a graduate school to get her degree in in, in midwifery. She's clinically trained, and she is trained under the medical model, okay? The community midwife who now can go to schools because now that things have progressed, decades have gone by since when I first started, like in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it's gained popularity. There's schools that are now up that are running midwifery programs for women who want to be home birth midwives. Um, And that can take anywhere, both of them can take anywhere between four and six years. Some people might do it a little, you know, shorter than that in a home birth setting. It's usually six years for a nurse midwife because she goes through four years of nursing school and then two years of midwifery school. And in that midwifery program, that two-year midwifery program, she's getting some of her clinicals, but she's getting some clinicals afterwards as well. Whereas with a home birth midwife, a community midwife, she finds a midwife, a senior midwife or an experienced midwife that she can get under her wings, okay? And while she's apprenticing with that midwife, meaning that she is um, going to prenatals with the midwife, she's going to births with the midwife, she's going to postpartum visits with the midwife as well. Um, That midwife might have her to be engaged in some kind of learning program also, okay? So everything can't be taught just by going to the births. You have, I do believe in didactics because you're going to learn more from reading um, books than you will probably during doing births. And some of the things that you learn in reading books, you may not experience in childbirth, you know, in a home birth, but there's just so much to learn um, about midwifery from minarchy all the way to postpartum because women come to midwives not only for during pregnancy, but also for especially the nurse midwives and some of the midwives that are community midwives who are trained. They also come to them for well women care as well. And so you can have your 13, 14, 15s as well as your 
your 50-year-olds, 55-year-old women that are still using the service, the services um, of a midwife. And then you have, um, and midwives are only trained, they're only educated and trained to um, escort a woman through pregnancy and birth who is low risk. If a mother is considered high risk, then she will go to the OBGYN, or if a low risk mother is with a home birth midwife or a nurse midwife, but she becomes high risk, then it's the role of the midwife to be able to recognize and then to refer her to an OBGYN where they can do either collaborative care or whether she might become the OBGYN's patient depending on the severity or the type of challenges that the mother might be experiencing. So midwives only work with low-risk mothers, meaning that they're healthy and they're not showing any signs of any problems during their pregnancy, and we're not anticipating any births, I mean, in any, um, in any problems. We're trained to be able to recognize problems, whether they're problems that occur during pregnancy or during birth or after birth, and also trained to know when to refer out. And then if we have to refer out, then we refer out to an OBGYN. So an OBGYN is a doctor. OB means obstetrics, delivering babies. GYN is gynecology, where all your well woman care takes place. And their education takes longer. I think they're in school maybe about 10 years. And they pretty much work in hospitals. And they are trained to um, deliver babies whether they are coming from low-risk mothers or high-risk mothers, they are trained to perform cesareans, midwives don't. They deliver babies through forcep deliveries as well as vacuum suctioning, midwives don't. And they perform cesareans when necessary and midwives don't, okay? So they take care of more high-risk people. And then you have the perinatologist where he focuses or she focuses on maternal and fetal health during the course of the pregnancy. So if you have a mother that has become high risk, then he's a high risk physician. He's an OBGYN that focuses primarily on high risk mothers. And he has all the tools and the gadgets in his office to monitor the baby and do surveillance on the baby. They do um, tests, they do ultrasounds, you know, all kinds of things. But he's not the patient's doctor. He's been referred to by the OBGYN. He performs whatever it is that the doctor is seeking that could be problematic and that he sends all of his findings back to the OBGYN and the OBGYN continues to deliver the baby. So those are the, um, those are the different tiers of maternity care professionals and what their education and their experience, you know, leads them to, you know, towards their profession. So can you kind of walk us through what is the experience of a home birth? I mean, as a midwife, but then also because you've also um, delivered all of us naturally at home. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Let me answer your question, too, mm -hmm. so that I can make sure that your audience is real clear on this. OK, so just like an OB is also a GYN, 
and a GYN may not always be an OB. You have lots of GYNs that don't deliver babies. They just offer well woman care. Kind of look like look at that in the lenses of your doula and your midwife. Your midwife is always a doula because we do those things too. We offer comfort, we offer support, you know, we advocate if we end up going to the hospitals with them. We have that's part of our roles too. But a doula does not perform what midwives do. They just support. They don't prescribe herbs. They don't deliver babies. They don't do prenatal care visits. They don't not they might do prenatal visits, but they don't perform prenatal checkups like we do, checking their blood pressure and their weight and so on and so forth. And so midwives have more clinical, they bring more clinical things to the birth and as well as the supportive part too, whereas a doula, she provides support and advocacy to the birth. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to make that clear because there's a lot of people who are, who confuse the two, you know, mm -hmm. they think that a midwife is a doula or a doula is a midwife. You have some doulas that are confused too and think that they're midwives. Yeah. <laughs> so just to take it back, uh, can you just talk us through um, what it is, what that experience is like as a midwife in home births, as well as um, a mother that has experienced home births? Mm -hmm. So... Well, I've already kind of given you, you know, the experience of the midwife in the home birth. Um, let me see. The things that I think that mamas and dads like what we bring to the table of home birth are some of the fuzzy, fuzzy stuff. You know, um, they like that most midwives, um, most, not all, but most of your midwives have more of a holistic edge to their practice. Mm -hmm. And they like that. And so when I say that, then they're, I'm talking about midwives who are more conscious about diet and nutrition, um, superfoods, vitamins, herbs, um, other little tricks of the trades that, that, that we have, that we bring to the table. One of my one of the one of the things that I've learned in the last maybe last fifteen years was um, a technique that was that's practiced amongst the Mayan midwives, and it's called rebozo. So you've seen Mexican women that wear these shawls around their shoulders, or they might wear it around their waist, or they might carry a baby in their back, you know, with it too. That shawl is called a rebozo, has many uses, those uses I just mentioned, but it's also used in childbirth so that it, if the midwife um, suspects that the baby's in an awkward position, she can wrap this um, sarong or this fabric around the mother a certain kind of way and jiggle her body a certain kind of way that will help to encourage the baby's head or the baby's body to get into a, a more optimal um, um, position. Leela had to do that. Hmm? Leela had to do that. Yeah, we did that with Leela. That's my, so Leela is my sister. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we did that with Leela. She had a rebozo used in hers. Uh, rebozo, nothing that they taught us that you might have seen pictures of 
Nandi was that you get one of the ends of it and tie it in a knot and throw it over the top of a door and then shut the door so that you can, the mother can now grab a hold of this fabric and squat down while she's pushing. And that helps give counter at counter pressure, not counter pressure, but it gives her a little bit more strength, you know, to push. Um, there's herbs that are allies during pregnancy. There's a wonderful herb called red raspberry that everybody knows about. That's best to drink during your second and your third trimester that helps tone the uterus during the course of the pregnancy. And then there's other herbs that are helpful during pregnancy too, as well as during labor and birth. And, um, and, um, and women like that, they gravitate to that because a lot of them are trying to live holistic lifestyles themselves, or at least want to bring their babies in naturally. So the least medicines or over the counters, this, that, and the other that they can get their hands on to doing something that's natural, then that's what they're seeking. And we bring that too. We bring massage, you know, massage hands on has always been a part of midwifery practice, you know, massaging the back and the shoulders, um, the feet, you know, just bring comfort to the, to the mother. Um, a lot of women have gained um, interest in the popularity of of water birth, you know, this is something that midwives bring to the table and, and home too. And it's not like water takes away the pain, but it takes that edge off of it that makes women who've experienced birthing out of the water previously at another at a different birth, and now are experiencing having their baby in the water. They'll tell me, oh, I can't do it any other way. This was definitely the the one for me. It wasn't though, because it really depends on people. I when I tried made an attempt to do a water birth with Leela, that's when water birth was just buzzing around. That was in the you could hear people. I could hear people talking about it like in around the latter half of the eighties, but I wasn't promoting it because I hadn't done them before, and so in. And even with Leela, because Leela was born in 89. And so I, I tried, you know, but when it came to pushing, it just felt like I couldn't get the right push to get her out. So I got out, okay, uh, out of the water. She was a big baby, so she was hard to push even out of the bed, I mean, out of the water. <laughs> it would have been hard either way, but I got her out. But you do have women that, you know, choose to have their babies, you know, in the water. And uh, for many of them, they just love it. You know, they just love it, love it, love it, love it. Those are things that you won't have a doctor. Doctors don't bring this to, you know, your birth experience. You mean doctors in the hospital? In the hospital, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, me coming into midwifery, when I came into midwifery, um, home, I mean, uh, home birthing was, was still a little whisper. It wasn't like, amplified like how it is right now but you know i was directed to you know you all's midwife you all's midwife the same midwife who delivered all five of you all and um and then after i had him six months later she had her baby and she invited me to her birth and so i went to her birth and it was that night after she gave birth that um, she invited me into midwifery. 
And it, her birth was kind of magical too, because when she was born, when she gave birth to her baby, her baby was born he looked like a Smurf. And the midwife, she was trying to, you know, get the baby to cry, but she couldn't get the baby to cry. And so she panically gave the baby to Nasra and told her, you know, you need to talk to your baby. Let your baby hear your voice because your baby's not responding to me. I remember those same words right now. And at the time, my midwife, she was Muslim. And so she whispered the Adon into the baby's ear. That's a prayer. She whispered a prayer to the baby's ear. And then all of a sudden, the baby took a deep breath and went, Aah! and I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was magic. <laughs> that was a miracle. And so after he was born and then after everybody else that had been at her birth left, I kind of hung around and stayed over there, sitting down on the floor next to her bed, talking to her about her birth. And that's when she introduced or um, invited me into midwifery. And so when I went home, I told my husband, your dad, who was very much supportive of it and into it. And my grandmother, who we were living with at the time, because she was you know, dealing with cancer at the time. So we were living with her. So I brought it to her attention and she was like, good, do it. She said, you must be taking on the spirit of your aunt Alice. That was her aunt. So that was my great, great, that was my great aunt. That was her aunt. Yeah, that was my great aunt, great, great aunt. Anyways, it was her mother's sister who was a midwife that delivered babies in Augusta, Georgia. And they used to call her the 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 country doctor because midwives were called country doctors because back in the time people went to the midwives to doctor on them you know the midwife not only was she skilled i'm talking about the granny midwives not only was she skilled in delivering babies but she knew herbs she knew all the herbs that grew around her what herbs were good for colds for coughs or for anything and if somebody broke their bones they would come to her she would reset it and whatnot. So that's how she got the name as the country, as the country doctor. And then when I brought it to my mother's attention, she was like, fine, because she was born at home. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother's born at home. Everybody was born at home except for me. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyways, all that to say is that I had the support. And so I, um, I ended up following my midwife for about four or five years. And in that four or five years, I knew that I did not want to be, I wanted to be Saran the midwife. I didn't want to be Saran Nasra the midwife. I, I wanted to have my own, my own swag, you know, bring something to the table that was a little bit more, that was unique from same thing, but something that was unique as well and, um, and different. And my midwife, she gave me a, the spiritual foundation of midwifery. As I said, your brother was really just her seventh delivery. So she was kind of green around the edges too, you know? And so both of us made it a point to volunteer at, um, at our charity hospital, which we call Grady Hospital. And um, we signed up to be volunteers in labor and delivery. And that allowed us to get a scope of birth, another scope of birth, a medical model scope of birth, 
for me, it gave me an idea where my parameters were. And it also introduced me into being a doula because sometimes there would be women there, teenage girls, the youngest girl I ever saw there, she was 12 years old, in labor, nobody there, no boyfriend, no best friend, no mommy, no auntie, no grandma, no nobody. And she didn't even know she was getting ready to have a baby, you know? And so the, all that year was a good learning experience, but I also started reading more. I wanted to read more and I wanted to know more and more and more and more and more. And so now we're talking about a period of time where conferences were popping up, midwife conferences were popping up. And so I would go off to these conferences to learn skills and pick up some theory and whatnot to invest in me, Saran, the midwife. And um, I wanted to learn how to do stitches. My midwife didn't do stitches. I wanted to learn to do stitches so that if I had a wonderful birth experience, I didn't want to have to send the mother to a hospital just to get stitched. If I can learn how to do stitches myself. And so I would do things like that. I wanted to learn how to control um, bleedings hemorrhages and so there's some things I learned along the way also to learn how to control hemorrhagings and things like that and so um, there's because of COVID and because things have um, teachings have become more um, electronic and digital with Zoom and other platforms similar to Zoom. Um, prior to that, we would have conferences. And these conferences were conferences that were going to be educating um, midwives and prospective midwives and give them the skills that they need to become midwives. And so that's where I got some of my skills from as well. You know, almost every year, every other year, if there was a conference that was coming to town or somewhere else and they were offering workshops on skills I felt like I needed, then that's where I would, you know, go and get, and that's the way most of us did. But like I said now too, there are schools that are now up where people who are interested in being um, home birth midwives, that they can go and get bachelor's degrees, where they can get master's degrees, um, and um, bring whatever it is that they're learning to the table. Now, when a woman is preparing herself for home birth, this is what I tell people when they call me and they think that they want to have a home birth. Um, I tell them that this is something that their great-great-grandmother did. Okay, probably not their mother and maybe not their grandmother. And depending on their age, maybe not their great-grandmother either, but definitely their great-great-grandmother. So I tell myself, so you want to step into the shoes of your great-great-grandmother. So if you want to step into the shoes um, like your great-great-grandmother and have your baby at home, then you have to be like her 100%, okay? So we're gonna start off first with food, okay? We're talking about time and period where there was no Zaxby's, no McDonald's, no Kroger's, no Whole Foods. The food that you ate came from the earth, probably in your backyard, okay? And what foods that you didn't have or what eggs you didn't have or what meat you didn't have, you probably bartered that off or she probably bartered that off with her neighbors who did have chickens and pigs and cows and whatnot. And that's how she ate. She ate organically. 
She did not have to concern herself with salmonella and E. coli or anything like that. She ate animals, whether they were, whether it was beef or whether it was chicken that were not inoculated with growth hormones and antibiotics. Okay. So you have to do that. Okay. And these animals that she ate, this, this is the meat that she ate. They didn't eat off of, they, they weren't in stalls where they ate cow chow and pig chow and they ate the grass off the earth or whatever leftovers that was thrown out to the chickens from the night before or to the pigs that was, you know, from meals from earlier in the day. And so you have to do that. Okay. I said, because these Zaxby's and Burger Kings and whatnot, they're not part of the healthcare system. They're not part, they're part of the healthcare system, but in another way. Okay. And um, they're not going to provide you with the nutrients that your baby needs as building blocks. Okay. So you're going to have to look at your diet. Now I want you to think about your great, great grandmother's physical fitness during her pregnancy. Okay, we're talking about a time where people did not have cars, or maybe few people did, but more than likely she didn't have a car. And so whenever she went to church, she walked. Whenever she went to the general store to pick up her flour or her bread or whatever she needed from there, she walked. Even if it was an all-day trip to walk, miles and miles there and socialized for a few minutes as she saw people in the store or whatever, and then walked miles and miles back. Okay. The food that she grew is still required getting out into the garden and weeding and watering and planting and harvesting. So she was physical that way. The clothes that she had on her back and her husband's and the children, she hand washed those things, rinsed them out, wrung them out, hung them out. You know, and so she was a lot physical than today's woman. Okay. Most of today's women, not all, but most of today's women sit most of the time. They get up in the morning, they make breakfast, they sit down and have breakfast. They get in the car, they sit down and go to work. They go to work, sit down at the desk and work until it's break time or until lunchtime. And then they go sit down and smoke a cigarette or go to lunch break and eat lunch, sitting down, and then come back to the office and finish working, sitting down. Work is over with. She gets back in the car. She sits and drives home. She goes home. She takes off her clothes, rinses off a little bit. She cooks and sits down and has dinner. And then she puts the dinner away, whatever's left over rather, and the dishes away, tidies up. And then she sits down and maybe watch TV and talk to her husband or family for a little while. And then they go to bed, mm-hmm. you know? So to have your baby at home takes another level of preparation. You just can't say, and you just can't come to me and say, oh, I want to have my baby at home because of COVID. Okay. Now, are you willing to work towards having your baby at home? Well, what do you mean? That's what they, they don't get it, you know? And then I tell them, I said, this is the way that you need to eat. This is the way that you need to rest. This is the way that you need to exercise. You need some kind of 
of uh, prenatal fitness so that you can condition your body, get your body prepared for it. It's like no football player, no basketball player, no dancer, no gymnast is going to get on the stage or get on the field without prepping their bodies first before their first game or before their first appearance. You have to prepare your mind, you know? When you watch those basketball players at the free throw line and they're getting ready to shoot to get that two points, you see them wobble their body, they're psyching themselves and then visualizing. They're visualizing and affirming that they're gonna make that basket. So you have to prepare your mind and you have to prepare your body as well for childbirth. If you don't, <laughs> just challenging. It's gonna be a challenge. <laughs> Um, we have a, a little bit of time left and I just want to make sure we squeeze this in because I think it's so important with you, what else you're doing outside of delivering babies. We're talking about exercise. We're talking about maternal wellness and, um, helping the black community, um, women of color, specifically in Atlanta, Georgia, um, stay strong. And I just want you to talk a little bit about maternal wellness hikers and what you and um, my sister, your daughter, Leela, are doing. So maternal wellness hikers came out of an interest that Leela had in hiking. Well, I've had an interest in hiking as well. I've been, I've been hiking since I was a little girl when we used to live in Hawaii. Um, I didn't raise you all up in hiking, but Leela picked up this interest in hiking. And so she hiked with her first pregnancy with... Um, with her daughter. And so then uh, here and there, here and there and here and there. But then when she became pregnant with her second baby, then um, you and myself and a few other friends of yours and Leela's, we went hiking and um, Leela said, you know what? We ought to make this a thing where we can invite other pregnant black women to come out so they can get some exercises because now we are in the, I guess around the beginning stages or the peak of COVID, at least during the period of time where people were still, you know, inside, people weren't getting out, they weren't getting no sunshine, no fresh air, any exercise, pregnant women especially, or in addition to, and um, we were like, yeah, because this would give women a reason to come out and get some exercise. And so um, we started doing this about two years ago. And in it is, is like it's organically growing on its own and different things are coming out of it on its own. And so what we decided that we would do is that we would make it like a uh, a mini a mini in my NI um, childbirth education little session that we can include in there during our water breaks. So everything about our hikes are intentional. Our purpose of maternal wellness hikers is to, um, in our little small capacity way, but in a big way, to help reduce the numbers of um, deaths in maternity care with mamas and babies. We're doing that by um, getting families to come out and get some exercise and also get some education, some learning. And so uh, what we do is that we, every other hike, we invite black birth workers 
These might be midwives or doulas or childbirth educators. They can be prenatal fitness people, people who specialize in maternal mental health. Um, oh gosh, nutritionists. We have different people that will offer some kind of information or products to mothers that's going to um, make their maternal wellness even better, more healthier. And they come in during our water break. And so during our water break, they come and they speak for about a half an hour. And then there's about 10 minutes of Q's and A's. And while people are listening to who our presenter is, then they're also snacking on snacks that we provide for them. And that's intentional too. It's intentional because we are trying to teach people that there are health, that they're that they need to incorporate healthier eating habits. Okay. That's going to be part of reducing our rates. Because when you look at the maternal mortality rates and the reasons or the causes of them, and you separate some of them, what was what's what's the hospital's problem and what's the 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 maternal the mother's problem what is it that she can focus on in terms of her lifestyle and in terms of her eating habits and when you think about hypertension when you think about gestational diabetes when you think about um preeclampsia these are all deep rooted into poor lifestyle habits and eating habits and so Coming out to walk is giving them the exercise, but also we create our own signature trail mix. And the trail mix is, is delivered, as I said, because it provides protein and iron in it. If there's protein in your diet, then you can help reduce the chances of developing preeclampsia. If you eat the, the dry fruits in the, that are in there, you can help to boost up your iron intake because dried fruits and dried berries are high in iron and the nuts are high in protein. So we put together a select um, in ingredients of dried fruits and, and berries and nuts to show people that there are healthier, yummy alternatives to Lay's potatoes, to potato chips and to candy bars, okay? And so our hikes are intentional, again, because um, you know, it gives, it gives an opportunity for people to meet other people, to network, to, um, to, um, to be in touch with resources that are available here in Atlanta that they may not normally, they may not have been in contact with before. They build camaraderie between themselves, the, the expecting couples, and, um, and then the educational component that we add to it during our water breaks. And so our goal is to help again in our in our way to bring down the numbers or not to be a part of those statistics, one hike at a time, one family at a time. And so it's not just for pregnant women, it's for pregnant women and their partners. And we encourage them to bring their supporters out because they need support. You need support during pregnancy. It's good to have people that can, you can talk to and ask questions, you know, about your pregnancy, about your birth, you know? So if it's your mother, we've had grandmamas to come out, granddaddies to come out, siblings to come out. And then we've had other birth workers. We invite other birth workers to come out there so they can make themselves known to, 
to people. At one point, I used to be really selfish. I'd be like, they can get all from me. But I realized that we are in a big city with a lot of people who need a lot of help. And if I can be a facilitator in introducing people to the world of birth workers that are out here that can offer you something that you just might need, then come on and be a part of it, including you birth workers, come and be a part of it so that these families can be, you know, aware of what it is that you're offering. And so, so far, since we've been doing these hikes, we haven't lost any mothers and we haven't lost any babies. Not everybody's a home birther and our hikes are not just for home birth. Our hikes are for Georgia's women because we're addressing Georgia's maternity health care crisis. Okay, so whether a mother's having her baby in the hospital, a birthing center, at home, with a doctor, with a nurse midwife, a home birth with midwife, it's for all moms. Nice. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you for sharing your story and sharing the history of midwifery, where we are today with the maternal um, crisis and how you're contributing to helping that number low um, get lower and lower. Um, how can our listeners find out more about you? What are some of your last thoughts as we just close out? Well, um, your listeners, they can find me on, um, on Facebook, Saran Henderson. You can also find maternal wellness hikers on Facebook. You can also find Birth in the Tradition, which is my service name, on Instagram. And you can also find Maternal Wellness Hikers. It's S at the end. Maternal Wellness Hikers on Instagram um, as well. Um, I don't tweet. No tweeting. <laughs> and um, I haven't gotten to that TikTok thing yet, but I'm going to get to that TikTok. <laughs> but right now, through Facebook and through um, Instagram, And my last thoughts to your audience would be, don't fear childbirth. Our country causes mothers to marinate in their pregnancy in fear to keep them from being able to enjoy their pregnancy. Pregnancy should be the highlight of one of the highlights of your life where people are treating you with kindness and not telling you a whole bunch of scary stories about their horrible birth experiences. They're telling you things to look forward to. They're encouraging you. You want to have doctors that are, you know, giving you good, you know, reports about your pregnancy. Um, um, you know, but that doesn't happen a lot, you know, because a lot of women have post-traumatic birth syndrome from previous births that traumatized them. And they'll come up to you and they're going to tell you about their birth story, not to scare you, but they're still processing it. They haven't finished processing it. You know, they're still hurting. And so if they can share it, not re- not, they don't realize that they're scaring you. They're just trying to purge through it, you know? So you got to protect your ears, okay? You have to create this invisible cocoon around you so that when people want to come at you with their scariness, whether it's a doctor or whether it's, you know, somebody who had a bad birth experience, you want to bounce off. Don't let it settle in you. Every birth is different. I have five children and all five of my pregnancies and births were different. 
That's their story. Be the author of your own story. But first, you got to start by taking good care of yourself. You're bringing life into the world. Treat that life as if your womb is the garden of your baby's soul. Okay? And the fertilizer that you're putting in there is of the best ingredients. The water, the fresh fruits, the fresh vegetables, the, the best of proteins, the best whole foods. That's the baby's fertilizers. You know, the, the, the prenatal vitamins that you get. And read books that are going to uplift you, that's going to prepare you for childbirth and breastfeeding. And breastfeed your baby. You all, you all get into breastfeeding your baby. That's the next movement that's happening too. You see all this breastfeeding stuff on, on Instagram and on, on, on all these social medias just trying to get that normalized. I want to say that during the 50s when I was being born, at that time, they were discouraging women from breastfeeding their babies. They would give the mothers a shot. It would dry up her milk before she left the hospital and she got her formulas. And so you have a couple generations of babies that are formula fed babies. And so you have these new mothers, you all who are growing up having babies who have moms that don't know how to support you with your breastfeeding because they didn't breastfeed. Okay. And so she's going to be real quick to say, well, you don't know how much the baby's getting. Why don't you just give the baby some formula we can measure you know, how many ounces it is, but you see, we're in a formula shortage right now. And if those <laughs> women were feeding their babies, the food that God intended on these babies drinking, you know, then they wouldn't, those people who are worried about their babies and the lack of formula that are out there, that would not be a conversation. You all prepare to breastfeed your baby, feeding your baby, um, breast milk is the best milk for babies. It's the best milk. Breast milk is the best milk. Slogan. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, mommy. You're welcome. <laughs> it's always a pleasure and it excites me listening to all of your words of wisdom, words of experience. And um, I hope that, well, I know that all of the audience and listeners will take a few big nuggets and store it in them yeah <laughs> golden nuggets <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me on um i hope that your your audience does go away with some good nuggets to hold on to and um, again they can find birth in the tradition on instagram and in um, on facebook and maternal wellness on Instagram and Facebook. Okay. I'm proud of you too. Oh, thanks, mommy. <laughs> Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at Glow. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of Glow members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.